Our Lord, we bring before You our praises and we lift Your name on high. We exalt You and give You all glory. You are the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All other gods are weak and worthless idols. We have come to You for refuge and safety. We come to find peace and provision. We come because we are needy and You are the all-sufficient One. We come to receive Your gifts, gifts of life, wisdom, and glory given to us through Your Word and the sacrament. Bless us today, Lord, according to Your promises. Work in us what is pleasing to You. Command what You will and give what You command. Meet us here today and open our hearts that the fruitful seed of Your truth and love might be planted in us and grow. As we gather here today, Lord, indeed as Your people throughout the world are gathering to worship You today, advance Your kingdom carry forward your mission, transform your people, and spread the message of your love to the ends of the earth. Make today a day that changes history because it changes your people. Beat down the gates of hell, set the prisoners free, give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. O Lord, we ask, hear our praises and petitions for the sake of your great name. Amen. Our lesson of the day is Second John. Listen carefully to God's Word. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it instructs us, the way that it convicts us, the way that it edifies us, the way that you teach us how to live in a way that pleases you. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever wondered why weddings are such 
a big deal. We've had a, a number of weddings uh, in our church recently. Um, and in our culture in general for as long as most of us can remember. And it seems like around the world, in almost every culture throughout history, weddings have always been a big deal. The time, the money, the stress, all the, the things that go into making a wedding happen sometimes make people wonder if we've lost our sanity, if it's all really worth it. Maybe sometimes there is certainly excess. Maybe there is a point at which we have lost our uh, sanity. But I think that the weddings, we make a big deal about weddings for a very good reason. And that reason, more than the beauty of uh, the ceremony itself, more than the way that we in our society today are upholding um, God's um, design for marriage between one man and one woman, more than all of those things, or maybe even what I should say is underneath all of those things, what we recognize in what almost every culture, it seems, has recognized is that that marriage is the central story of history. That a wedding is a representation, a symbol of what history is all about. We see this very clearly uh, in the Bible. Of course, the Christian worldview is the only one that really gets this. But there are other cultures that get bits and pieces of this, I think. But of course, the Scriptures are where we see this most clearly. The Bible opens with a wedding and it closes with a wedding. The first Adam and his wife Eve are wed in the garden and that is the prototype. That is the model for all marriages. That For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is not just an ancient wedding story that we can look at fondly and think about uh, nice thoughts. This is the design. But the Bible also closes with a wedding. This is the culmination of God's Word. The culmination of redemption history is another wedding. The wedding between the second Adam and his bride, the church, in a garden city. Marriage is a central theme throughout Scripture. It is the overarching theme of history. Uh, And in fact, you could sum up the Bible like most of the good fairy tales. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Right? That is, in essence, what the Bible is all about. Jesus has come. He has slain the dragon so that He can get the girl. So that He can rescue His bride. The fairy tales almost always get it right. And they especially get it right at this point. And because this is the case, we see this theme developed throughout Scripture. We see it clearly in some of Paul's writings, like we read from Ephesians 5. We see it throughout the Old Testament. But we also see it in more subtle ways here in 2 John. As I pointed out a couple weeks ago, 2 John is interesting in that he address, John addresses his congregation 
as the elect lady. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to rehash all of that. But let me remind you that the term lady here is not just the generic term for a grown-up, an adult woman. This is the feminine form of the word for Lord. Curios is the word for Lord that we refer to Christ as Lord. And His wife, the elect lady, is Curia. She is a noble woman. She is the bride, the princess, the queen of God's household, exalted with her, her bridegroom as queen, His people, the church. We are the bride, the royal lady in the household of God. And John uses this terminology to remind us, to remind his congregation who we are and whose we are. But the church is flawed. The church is not perfect yet. The church has a lot of problems. We're all sitting here. All the problems that the church has are sitting right here and standing right here. Right? We are not what we ought to be. We are not who we ought to be. We are not who we will be. And so 2 John acts like premarital counseling for the church. This is John the Apostle's premarital counseling for congregations who are the bride of Christ, but are not yet fully who they ought to be. We still we are betrothed to our husband, our bridegroom, but the wedding has not been fully consummated in all of its glory, as it will be when our bridegroom returns. And so I want to point out three things in Second John uh, that the Apostle gives us as premarital counseling for the church, for this congregation and our congregation and every congregation, how we are to stay the course, how we are to be prepared for meeting our bridegroom. The first that we see in verses 4-6 through is this command to walk in the commandments. The word walk refers four times just in these four verses. And in the New Testament and in all of Scripture, the idea of walking a certain way has to do with living your life a certain way. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life. And so the emphasis that John places here is on walking in God's commandments. The bride of Christ is to live life that is marked, shaped, informed by, and submitted to God's commandments. That should characterize life in the body of Christ. And what is the commandment? John refers to walking in all the commandments, walking in the commandments, plural. But then he says he narrows it down as he loves to do and he summarizes the commandments with one commandment. Just as Jesus did in John 14, right? This is the commandment. To love one another. And how do we love one another? By obeying God's commandments. You see, there's this circle here. We obey God's commandments. We walk in God's commandments by loving one another. And what does it look like when we're loving one another? We're obeying God's commandments because that's the way we show love for one another. 
Now, for many evangelicals, this talk of loving through obeying commandments and obeying commandments through loving seems very odd. It almost sounds contradictory. Uh, For some reason, there are many Christians to whom love and law together in the same sentence sound, it seems like trying to put oil and water together. How can you, how can obeying God's commandments be love and how can love be obeying God's commandments? You may have heard some of these ways of thinking that Christianity is not about rules, it's about a relationship. Or that rules indicate an absence of love. Or that law and gospel are antithetical, that they can't go together, that they're opposed to one another. Or maybe that the Old Testament law is legalistic works righteousness and that the New Testament is all about grace. Or this romantic idea that doing things out of duty or obligation is hypocritical. That if you really love someone, if you really love God, if you really love somebody, it'll just be spontaneous and flow freely from your heart. You won't have to do anything out of duty or obligation. Well, in direct contradiction to all of these misguided ways of thinking, John asserts that the commandments of God are not just a good way to show love. They are the way to show love. They are essential to love. That God's commandments are the way that we show love to God and to one another. In fact, one theologian has said that without rules, you can have no relationship. This is why, going back to the Old Testament, this is why God gave His law, gave the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law as a gracious act toward His redeemed people, toward His bride. It was the Ten Commandments, the law, was a wedding gift to His redeemed bride, the people of Israel. He made her into a special people in a holy nation after He redeemed her from slavery in Egypt by giving her His his law. This is how you live in relationship with your Lord now that you're redeemed. Of course, this is a theme we see throughout Scripture, that love is the summary of the law, as Jesus says. You parents know this better than probably anybody, that the most loving thing you can do for your children is to give them wise and godly rules to follow. And that, by contrast, the most unloving thing you can do for your child is to let them do whatever they want. That sounds somewhat counterintuitive, maybe, in our culture that says, oh, you know, you just have to let your child figure, figure out who they want to be and what they want to do. And that's the most unloving thing that a parent can do for their child. And of course, this is how it is with God. That the most unloving thing that God can do for us is to leave us in our sin. The most unloving thing that God can do, and in fact, one of the harshest judgments of God that we see in Scripture is when He turns us over to our sin. When God says, you don't want, you don't want, the, you don't want me? You're going to reject me? I'm not going to... 
I make, you know, he'll come and he'll punish his people because they're his people and they belong to him. But if the if a, someone says, I, I don't want anything to do with God, the worst punishment that they could receive is that God would say, okay, you do your own thing. That is a scary, scary thought. And so, we see that we need God's commandments in order to know how to love one another, in order to grow as God's people up into maturity. We need the commandments of God. We need to know what it means to love one another. So as strange as it might sound to say that we walk in God's commandments by loving one another, and we love one another by walking in God's commandments, John goes on to explain that love is also another essential ingredient for love is doctrine. Okay, now that sounds even more weird to say that not only do we need God's commandments to know how to love, but we need doctrine, right? Doctrine gets a bad rap these days, even in a lot of Christian circles. We don't want to talk about doctrine because doctrine is too divisive. Doctrine divides people, right? Well, John says we need doctrine if we're going to love. Look at what he says in verses 7 through 9. He says that we need to abide in the teaching about Christ. This is the teaching, the apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine. And the teaching that he requires us to abide in is the teaching of the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the central tenet of the faith. This is the heart of the Gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come in the flesh and still is in the flesh, in heaven, interceding for us. He has opened a way into the heavenly sanctuary for us through His body, the veil that was torn. Right? Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. It means anointed one. So to say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Messiah who has come and still is in the flesh. And this, of course, encompasses everything from His incarnation, His virgin birth, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His enthronement in heaven, and His return at the last day. This is the teaching. John says that if you don't believe in this teaching, you are the Antichrist. You are anti-Messiah. Anti-Christ. See, the apostles have great patience for God's people uh, who fall into sin or who act foolishly. But they have zero tolerance for anyone spreading false teaching about the incarnation of Christ, about Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This is the heart of the Gospel. But notice here the causal relationship. In verse 7, many of your Bibles say, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. I think it's a little bit stronger than that. It's not just a convenient transition word. This is, John is saying, 
that you need to walk in the commandments of God by loving one another because many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. John is saying that you, if you're going to maintain sound doctrine, you have to love one another. And if you're going to love one another, you have to maintain sound doctrine. How is that? How is that? Well, in 1 John 4, 7-9, through John spells it out for us a little bit more clearly. Why this teaching about Christ is so essential if we're going to love one another. He says in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Why do we need this teaching about Christ? Why do we need to have this apostolic doctrine about Christ coming in the flesh if we're going to love one another? Because that is the manifestation of God's love. That is the greatest manifestation of God's love for the world. That is the example, the model, the paradigm of all love is summed up in the incarnation of Christ. If we reject the incarnation of Christ, we have rejected the greatest example of love ever known. We have cut ourselves, if we cut ourselves off, from God's love in Christ, how can we expect to know love, to love one another? This is why the Gospel, the truth of the Incarnation, is central, is essential to loving properly. Because until we have fully understood, until we have fully known and received God's love in Christ, we have no hope of being able to love others as we ought. Now, sadly, the, the church, we often separate doctrine from love. We often uh, either fall on one side or the other. Either we care so much about doctrine that we have no love, or we only care about love and we have no doctrine. But both of these attitudes, both of those extremes, are prohibited by God's Word. John is explaining to us here that right doctrine will necessarily lead to love for others. If your doctrine isn't leading you to love the, your brothers and sisters in the church, there's something wrong with your doctrine, I think. And if you want to love one another, that will mean that you will have, you will safeguard each other against false doctrine. You won't tolerate false doctrine being promoted if you truly love somebody, right? And so I would summarize it this way. We can't abide in sound doctrine if we're not walking in love. 
We can't walk in love if we're not abiding in sound doctrine. The two go hand in hand. The two are distinct, but they cannot be separated. This is why if you're, uh, when you took your membership vows, if you're a member of our church or many other Reformed churches use the same membership vows, what the last vow of the membership vows is to promise to pursue the purity and the peace of the church. Rich always goes into this in membership interviews that the reason those two are held together, purity and peace, is because so often they are torn apart, as I've already pointed out. If the bride of Christ is going to be prepared to meet her bridegroom, we can't pursue purity at the expense of peace, nor can we pursue peace at the expense of purity. We have to hold them together and love one another through our doctrine and ensure that our doctrine is promoting love within the body of Christ. And John here closes his letter with a very important yet very practical way that we do this. That we pursue the purity and peace of the church. And that's through practicing proper hospitality. Practicing proper hospitality. We see this in verses 10-11. through If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... He's talking about the apostolic doctrine, the teaching about Jesus the Messiah coming in the flesh. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The corollary to abiding in the teaching about Christ is refusing to promote or support those who spread false teaching about Christ. John goes so far as to say that supporting a false teacher makes you complicit in their sin. You take part in the wicked works if you support, if you aid, if you show hospitality to a false teacher. Now, does this mean that we should slam the door in the face of the Mormons or give the Jehovah's Witnesses a a holy piece of our mind when they come knocking on the door? No, I, I don't think that's what John is encouraging here. I don't think this means that you can't have a cup of coffee with a Mormon co-worker or that you can't share the gospel with a Muslim neighbor or uh, your Hindu um you know, classmate or something. I I would interpret what John says here this way. It, it says, most translations say, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. I think you could also translate that household. And in the context of the church, I think what John is saying is, do not receive them into the household of the church. Or give him, he says, do not give him any greeting. The word here uh, has the connotation of a joyful embrace. So I think the kind of hospitality that John is saying is do not welcome into uh, the household and give some sort of warm embrace 
Don't give a public platform. Don't give a teaching platform to anyone who denies the doctrine of Christ. So I think the door is wide open and the encouragement throughout Scripture is clear that we can be winsome in our evangelism and show the love of Christ to uh, people uh, who do not trust in Christ. But when it comes to the life of the body, when it comes to welcoming someone into the household of the church, we need to be much more careful. But I also think that for us individually, in an age of TV preachers and radio shows and internet media and blogs, we as individuals need to be more discerning. We need to make sure that we are careful uh, about who we welcome into our cars or into our homes uh, through, through the different media that we consume. But there's, so that's the negative side. That's the negative side of practicing proper hospitality. But all the, the, the talk of who we should shun or who we should not welcome into the household of the, of the faith, I think suggests, of course, that there is a positive side to practicing proper hospitality. That John's instructions about who not to welcome implies that there are people that should be warmly warmly welcomed by the church. And that's what 3 John is really all about when we when we get there. Who who we welcome is just as important, I think, as who we shun. To put it bluntly, hospitality Proper hospitality, the negative side and the positive side. Who we keep out, who we protect against, and who we welcome in. This kind of hospitality will make or break a congregation. A congregation that is inhospitable and unwelcoming will shrivel up and die. A congregation that does not cultivate an ethos of mutual love and service will be ineffective in fulfilling the mission of Christ. After all, this is the distinguishing mark that Jesus gave as to how the world will know that we are His disciples. The Gospel is embodied in community, in the body of Christ, living out the mission of Christ with each other, and out in the world. And hospitality is at the core of what it means to be the church, to be the bride of Christ. On the other hand, a congregation that is loving and hospitable to those inside and outside of the church will bear much fruit for the kingdom. You know, it's, it's a natural tendency for a community of any sort to welcome only those who are already like us. Right? It's far easier. It's far more comfortable. It requires less sacrifice. But if there's no entry point into the community for people who are different from us, our congregations will become ingrown and irrelevant. Is the church flawed? Yes. Do we do these things perfectly? 
No. Are we in need of reformation? Yes, of course. Are we full of problems? Yes, as one of my seminary professors used to say, I got issues, you got issues, all God's people got issues. Right? But, we have this certain hope. We have this promise that Jesus is committed to the perfection of His bride. That Jesus will stop at nothing to perfect and purify His people. We are His body. He is our head. We have been purchased with the blood of Christ. And we are His. And so, the Apostle Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the promise that we have, that through the worship of the church, through the sacraments, through the means of grace, through obeying God's commandments and loving one another, through abiding in the teaching about Christ and through showing proper hospitality that God has promised to present the church as a bride to His Son in splendor. Not rags. Not a mediocre, outdated wedding dress. In splendor. The righteousness of Christ in which we are clothed and the work of the Spirit in us. We have this hope. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this great promise and this great encouragement from Your Word. Help us to labor faithfully in hopes of that day when You will present us as a pure and spotless bride for Your Son. May we be diligent. May we be humble. May we be committed to living as Your bride, as Your people, for Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our great God, our hearts are filled with gladness because of Your grace. Our theme is thanksgiving to You for all Your gifts to us. You renew Your mercies to us each day. Your kindness to us overflows. We speak and sing and shout out Your goodness and Your glory. In Your Son, we have a perfect and complete salvation. Jesus has loved us to hell and back and has the scars to prove it. His blood covers our every sin and shortcoming. And in Him, we are fully accepted by You as righteous. We thank You, O Father, for calling us to Yourself by Your Spirit that we can enjoy fellowship and communion with You as Your children. We thank You for adding us to Your church the living temple you are building as a house for your glory. Today, we pray especially for your grace to fall on your church and our country. We live in a land where it has 
often been very easy to be a Christian, and we have gotten too comfortable and complacent at times. We have allowed too much of the world's thinking and ways to creep into the church community. And so, Lord, we ask, help us in all humility to repent, to reform, to renew. Help us to be diligent in evangelizing and discipling our nation. We pray for You to raise up faithful pastors and teachers in Your church to unite Your church in our land. For we have greatly weakened Your church by our many divisions. Father, we also pray for our nation's civil leaders, our politicians, our president, Congress, judges, and others who shape our nation's laws and policies and enforce them. We ask that You would raise up God-fearing leaders who can rule us in wisdom who will give us freedom to live according to Your revelation, who will allow us to go about our business as Your people without interfering with the mission and ministry of the church. Father, we pray against the great evils that stain our land. The idolatry of the self. Sexual lawlessness. Greed. Violence. Sloth. Laziness. The taking of innocent life here and abroad. Father, help us to repent of these and many other sins. And by Your grace, may Your church lead the way in this repentance. We pray for the strengthening of families. We pray that You would help us to care for the poor and needy and sick. We ask that You would help us to befriend the lonely and the outcast. And Father, we pray for the spread of virtue. We pray that You would help us to relieve suffering we encounter all around us. Father, we pray today also for the needs of our church body. We pray for expectant mothers, for health, rest, and peace, for Charity Hanby and Liz Richardson. We pray for those with physical needs. In particular, we pray for Your blessing upon Gilbert Douglas, Charity Hanby, Brenda Jordan, Ashley Hamblin, Steve and Heather Dornan, Bethany and Blanche Laughlin, Frank Hampton, Shauna Phillips' grandfather, and other loved ones we bring before You in our hearts now. Father, You alone can grant peace, and so we ask that You would do so. We pray that You would give to us all the comfort of the Gospel. We pray that through Your Word, You would give us wisdom and direct our steps. That You would fill us with love for You and our neighbors, that You would plant sound doctrine in our minds, that You would strengthen our faith and deepen our repentance, that You would discipline us and work in us, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. We thank You, Father, for Christ, Your Son, our Savior, our Mediator, our King. And we ask that You would hear us now as we pray in the form of words He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.